Hello, this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. The Bureau is dedicated to collecting and recollecting lost, half-remembered, or forgotten countercultural stories. We love to dig them up, unearth them, bring them back from the dead. You can find out more about what we do at bureauoflostculture.com. I am Stephen Coates, and I'm here with my comrade, Paul Hartfield. For today's episode, Comrades, we're going to return to the Soviet Union. But this time, it's around about the time of Perestroika, and we're going to hear in particular about one Soviet musician. I call him the Soviet punk Frank Zappa, Sergei Karyokin, the captain, as he was called, and his band, Popular Mechanics. But the theme of the episode is Comrades, because in 1983 and 1984, two intrepid BBC reporters were sent to the Soviet Union to make a series of documentaries about life there. The final episode of Comrades was dedicated to Sergei Koryokin, but getting it made was a proper Cold War story in itself, involving secret filming, tapes smuggled out in diplomatic bags. So I'm very pleased that one of our guests today is one of those intrepid BBC reporter producers. She is a film director, a film producer, a storyteller, a writer, and many other things. Olivia Lichtenstein. Hello, Olivia. Hello. Lovely to be here. And we've got current producer and everything else, BBC arts correspondent for Russia, Alexander Khan. Hello. Now, Sergei Karyokin was a good friend of yours, Alex, right? He was indeed. Yeah, right. We, we worked so, together a lot. So and we, I was very much actually involved in the making that particular episode of Comrades. Right. Olivia, I mean, you look like you're barely out of your 30s. You must have been, what, eight or nine at the time? <laughs> <laughs> you should see the picture in the attic. Um, <laughs> tell, us, tell us how... How Comrades the series happened? How did it come about that you did this extraordinary thing? Uh, well, for me, it was a very uh, lucky thing, actually, because I had read Russian at um, university and I had spent a year as an undergraduate at Leningrad University. So, uh, and that was from 1977 to 78, which was very much still Cold War time and Brezhnev was still in power. Um, and then, you know, after that, I sort of finished my studies and then started to work in television. And one day I got a phone call from the BBC saying, oh, people have told us you speak Russian and we're wanting to do this big series. Would you be interested, um, you know, in, in coming to talk to us? And I almost sort of got up and ran straight over there because it was obviously my dream job um, and met Richard Denton, who was going to be the series producer of this and so I then started working at the BBC in July of 1983. Um, and we were, you know, our task was to make a 12-part series about the Soviet Union. And it was the first proper documentary series that had ever been made there. And we were doing it in conjunction with Gostelli Radio, which was the state body who, you know, oversaw television and radio. And so... Um, it was a question of navigating those relationships and we were always pushing for more and they were always trying to push us back. Um, so it so was an extraordinary time to be doing it. And I mean, an incredible first commission for you, right? I mean, to go straight into that. It was absolutely wonderful, actually, because up until then I'd been working in news and I'd been making sort of short items and reporting on camera and doing that sort of thing. And so here was an opportunity to actually make longer form, which is what I wanted to do. Um, and Richard um, Denton, who remains a lifelong friend, um, was extremely sort of generous and, you know, really gave me the opportunity to to make films in the series as well as to work on, you know, the other ones because I was the Russian speaker. Right. So. 
When you went out there, did you have any sense, any inkling that these were the tw- this was the twilight of the empire? I don't think that we did because in 83 it was still pretty much as it had been in 1977 to 78. Um, and although there was... An, I think when we started and Dropoff was in power... Uh, Alec, you probably remember better. And yes. then Andropov died and then Chernyanko took over, over yeah. and then Gorbachev came to power. Indeed. So I think with this, because Brezhnev had been in power for so long, and then with this sudden quick succession of leaders, you have this feeling that things were then beginning to shift. But certainly while we were making the series, we were still very much subject to the normal kind of Soviet controls. So you were minders the whole time, everything that you were recording or filming was being kind of like monitored... And then the agreement was that when it was all done, that the edit would be done in conjunction with your colleagues in in Soviet Union. Well, the agreement was this, that that obviously we gave them the slip whenever we could. Um, And because, um, you know, I I spoke Russian and Alan Bookbinder, who also came to work on the series, also spoke Russian. We were able and we were quite familiar with the system, as it were. Um, And it was a system at the time, and Alec will know this much better than me, that you could always find your way around a bit. Mm. So we, yes, we were minded, but we were always aware of, we weren't naive. We always were aware of what was really going on and we were always pushing the boundaries. But then we hit this kind of block because with with the film about Sergei Kuryokin, what had happened there was that I had met Leo Fagan, who was then... um, Uh, broadcasting on the world service to Russia which was they used to try and jam as well you know Mm. it was kind of you weren't meant to be listening to it and I met Leo and he told me about Sergei and then Leo um, gave me Alex's phone number and so I think that what then happened was that we were in Leningrad and I contacted Alec and maybe Leo somehow had even contacted you. Anyway, so I went to see Alec and then, you know, we met and then he introduced us to Sergei. Right. So so just to sort of back up a little bit. So the, this is the final uh, program in the documentary series. It's shot in Leningrad and we're going to come back to how you shot it because it's all quite Cold War, isn't it? Um, Alex, just, well, you could probably say a little bit about your history to get that gets you to Leningrad as well, but maybe you're the best person to introduce Kuryokin. Well, Sergei Kuryokin by that time uh, was a, a very well-known figure in the cultural underground in Leningrad. And to give you some context, um, indeed, um, as Olivia rightly says, on the one hand, things were very much like uh, in the sort of stagnation, as we called it, period, very much like the very Soviet ways. But on the other hand, things were starting to move. Things were starting to change. What happened in 1981, that um, three independent artistic organizations were set up They were set up with the government, or actually even with the KGB control, but they were, one was for writers, critics and poets, the other one was for visual artists, and the third one was for rock musicians, Leningrad Rock Club. So they didn't have any access to the media, they didn't have any access to to print machines or recording equipment or labels or whatever. But nevertheless, they were allowed to exist somehow in this kind of makeshift DIY underground scene. 
and uh, their popularity was growing. Sergei's record was released uh, by Leo in the um, here in the UK. So the Western press, the Western media were coming over and kind of um, recording the, the phenomenon. And when Olivia and Richard came, that was part of this kind of growing interest uh, that the West had in, um, in this new cultural phenomenon. And what were, but who were you? I mean, so, like, you were a friend of Sergei's, but what were you doing in Leningrad at that time? Officially, You'd I been was, involved in music, hadn't you? Officially, I was teaching English at an art school, but at the same time, along with Sergei and uh, another friend, back in 1978, it was, or 79, 79, we started something called Contemporary Music Club which was an organization for promoting avant-garde, non-conventional music. That was banned in 1982. But as I said, by that time, in 1981, those new organizations uh, mm -hmm. opened up. So I was very much involved into all this cultural under underground as promoter, as a concert organizer, as the liaison between the, 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 the local under, underground scene and Western, because I spoke very good English, and all these Western media. So I was very much in the middle of these whole things. I, we were very close friends with, with Sergei, and uh, I helped organize all these concerts with Sergei and all the other musicians. So, so I was very, very much, well, I could probably even say in the center of the whole movement. So the this is an important thing because you've got this official culture, unofficial culture, the continual theme all the way through the 20th Absolutely. century in, 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 in Soviet Union. Uh, and this is all unofficial culture. So Sergei, technically extraordinarily gifted, amazingly experimental, could not even be recognised in his own country, but had already released a record with Leo Fagin in the in West. The that West. was Ways of Freedom, right? In the West. In the, in the West, West but only. not in the Soviet Union. Do you have a little bit of a listen to something from there?
that's from Ways of Freedom. It, I play that on purpose now because it's quite a sort it's like deceptive introduction to, to karaoke, but it shows that he had his chops, didn't he, Olivia? I mean, he was a sort of super uh, virtuoso piano player. He could do all that stuff. He went on, of course, to do a lot more, but he, he was that too, wasn't he? Well, I think that's what was so extraordinary about him, and I always felt it was so important to find a way within the series to represent this unofficial Soviet life because when you were there, that was the life you lived, you know, and and you kind of gravitated towards the intelligentsia and there were all of these fantastically creative writers, musicians, painters, poets. And, you know, what was extraordinary about Sergei was, well, with, like with Alec having this job teaching English, but really having a whole other life. You know, Sergei, I think at that time, was a pianist in a sports school exactly, or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, because you couldn't be unemployed, you had to have mm. a job. So, and one of the favourite jobs for, for, for uh, the in, in, intelligenti was actually to be something like a heating engineer. Where you or could, night watchman. Or night watchman. Right, <laughs> There's even could, a song, a generation of uh, night watchman and street cleaners. <laughs> so these, so basically, you've got your job nominally, a job which requires absolutely nothing of you apart from the fact that you might you sort of turn up for a couple of hours a day, and then you get on with your real life. And Paul, you're going to say. Oh, yeah, so so that's right. And I remember somebody who I think was a heating engineer said, you know, you see, it's very good because you sit there, you've got your book. Every now and again, you have a look, you adjust the knob, and then you go back to your book. So this was the sort of duality of Soviet life, and it felt, you know, uh, extremely important to represent it. And then, of course, when you heard what, you know, Sergei could do anything he wanted musically. And so when you heard him play the piano, you realised he had had this classical training and that he could be in the conservatoire and he could have been playing the game and doing all that stuff, but that wasn't who he was. So that, you know, in order for him to be able to find expression for his talent, he had to do this ducking and diving and weaving and bobbing that everyone did who really wanted to be the artist that they wanted well, that yeah, really comes over in your film because there's a sort of community of, of Sergei and his friends, collaborators, artists, all sorts of people. And they, they seem to be gathering in these kind of semi-abandoned uh, semi buildings, I guess on the outskirts of the city, uh, making use of whatever they can, surviving. I think he says he's surviving on a, a sort of half the average minimum wage. They're all kind of just scraping by. Is that what it was like, Alex? Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely, but as uh, Olivia rightly says, those uh, jobs that uh, could provide you with lots of time to, to, to do your own thing, and you not, could on, not only read your book, but you could write, you could compose there, in wherever you, you worked, but uh, the rest of the time was, of course, going into creativity. And important thing about Sergei, yes, indeed, the piece that we just heard is just pure piano playing, and it's very kind of uh, smooth and uh, even mellow at the time, but but um, uh, what is important about Sergei is that uh, by that time he was um, he was probably thought of as a jazz pianist, free jazz pianist. But at the same time, his background, apart from his classical training, which, by the way, he never completed. Well, he was kicked out of the conservatory. <laughs> he was kicked out of a number of mm. uh, music schools, mm. which is a separate story. Uh, but so apart from his classical training, his background, of course, was in rock. The generation of uh, the 1960s, people like myself and Boris Grebenchikov, we were growing up in the 1960s. We were very, we were, we were, uh, we were, we were a rock generation, mm. and jazz came only later. So Sergei, when when a rock had become really popular in the and uh, really 
important, culturally important in the Soviet Union in the very early 80s, Sergei became a, a hugely important link between the kind of free jazz, more cultural, kind of ambitious, uh, highbrow, if you want, culture and uh, rock, popular music of rock. So he was bringing this high cultural element into the rock music. He was bringing his virtuosity of a musician. And at the same time, he was borrowing the energy, the thrust of uh, rock music. So he was therefore very important. And his popular mechanics, something that we see in the film, was an amalgam, was a combination mm. of those two. Mm. And I mean, in fact, of course, he's, he's rather withering about the sort of official... Uh, Soviet rock scene in your film, isn't it? He sort of, I think he says something like he's embarrassed when he, he sees him. There's this funny, there's this funny moment when um, the Observer magazine have uh, sent a, a journalist out to Soviet Union to cover uh, so the, the rock scene at that time, and they've written about this band called Doctor. And they're all sitting around saying, we've never heard of them. I mean, like, did, did they even exist? It was almost like they'd been made up by the establishment. There was that's, this... that's possible. <laughs> there was, there was, there was a probably a, a virtually insurmountable barrier between mm. the two cultures. Mm. Um, amongst ourselves, we had this contemptuous attitude towards uh, everything official. Mm. Official in rock, in jazz... And uh, there was no way we could, could have accepted. We were thinking of them as something really not worth even of knowing. That's why we were oblivious of bands like Doctor or whatever. So we were existed in our own world. And, we, and our own world was uh, quite content because we had our own clubs, we had mm. our own venues, we had our own media in terms of, um, in form of summers that magazines, we had our own festivals. So we had a culture mm. which was completely independent um, of, uh, of the officialdom. So let's cut back to, to Olivia. You, 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 you've been introduced via Leo Ferry to, to Alex. You call him up. You're in Leningrad. You're already in Leningrad at the time, or did you go back out there? And I think we were actually there. We were doing another film about a um, uh, a uh, film director, Dinara Sanova, um, who managed. Actually, she was quite interesting, in fact, because she sort of managed to to be official but still be pushing the boundaries. Yes. Um, but yes, yeah, so I mean, so this was this whole culture that we felt was so important to represent in the series, um, and um, so. I met Alec, we met Sergei, we thought, wow, this is going to be fantastic, we want to make this film. We then had to say to the authorities, we would like to make a film about Sergei Kuryokhin, who's, you know, an unofficial jazz musician living in Leningrad. And they came back and said, no, you can't. Um, so, obviously, that didn't sit very well with us. So, then what happened was that we thought, well, you know what, we're going to do it anyway. But let's do all the other filming first and get all of that out the way. And then what happened was that I went in as a tourist with my then boyfriend, and we took, I mean, this is 1985, I think, 84 or 85 that we filmed it, I'm trying to remember. But we took, you know, the technology back then was not nearly as advanced as it is today, so that the video camera that was available was one which took a full-size VHS cassette, it's quite kind of cumbersome. Anyway, so in we go with this and, um, you know, meet up with Alec. And then we spent two weeks in Leningrad, uh, all of us together, filming. Right, so I think 
you'd said earlier as well that it wasn't just that this... Did, had they said that you couldn't film Kurokin or was that he didn't exist? Didn't they sort of deny that he existed as uh, a musician or something, at least? I think they sort of said, well, there is no... Yes, there's no such, you know, musician. And I think they might have said that, actually. And, of course, we knew there was because we'd met him. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's here. For them, officially, he did not exist. He did not he exist. He did not exist, officially. That's right. I love it. So was there, was, was there, was there an attempt to, to get you to film somebody who officially did exist instead was that i think that there may have been suggestions of people but you know the thing was it was always this sort of for the whole of the series because you know richard and i had done this sort of spreadsheet of the parts of the country that we wanted to cover and the sorts of people that we wanted to be in the films to try and get a representative mm. picture of the soviet union which was no mean feat because it was a vast country um, and so we had wanted, you know, Moscow and Leningrad and then, you know, Samarkand and uh, Siberia and Baku and all of these places. And so we had found all of these places and um, we had selected people and sometimes they would sort of nudged us in the way of certain people. But even if they'd nudged us, we felt we could make that work because mm. you're always going to find out something, you know. Um, and so with this one, we just sort of let it drift a bit. And then when it came to it, actually, and then we wrote to them and said, we have actually filmed this and it is now edited. So if you would like to see it, because it was out of courtesy, we had to let them see it. Mm. But we didn't really have to, you know, we didn't change it. It was only factual inaccuracies. Uh, anyway, and we got this fantastic, this was in the day of um, telex, I think. <laughs> we got this telex back, which said, since you did not need the help of us uncultured Ruskies in making this film... <laughs> We do not need to see it. And I think what worked in our favour was that by now, you know, we're sort of 1985, things really are beginning to shift. And somehow mm. we got away with it mm. and sort of all remained friends. Mm. So there wasn't any acknowledgement, OK, he does exist because you've actually filmed and recorded him. It was just, nope, we're not going to even look at that. Yeah. You've been rude. You've been not, you've been rude. Yeah. You've done this behind our backs. And, you know, of course I had, you know, and I Well, was... I mean, let's talk about that because not only had you done it behind their backs, uh, you'd sort of, you know, it's it's a sort of almost like Cold War-esque story of, of, of tapes being smuggled out in your suitcase. Tell us about that. Well, actually, first of all, you, Alec has introduced you to, to Kuryokin. What was your impression when you, when you first met him? Um, I think it was... You know, Sergei was just so charming and shy, really. He had this kind of, he had this wonderful mixture of shyness, but also arrogance and yeah. total belief yeah. in Mock his own. Shine. Yeah, you know, total, well, but, and, you know, total belief in his own abilities because he was so talented. And you could see he had this head that was just buzzing with music. He could never sit still. He was always tapping out a rhythm or, you know, humming or he was just very kind of active. And he was also staggeringly beautiful. Um, and so, you know, as a kind of subject for a film, he was just perfect. Mm. So, um, you know, it was just really exciting, actually. And then we spent this couple of weeks sneaking around and filming everywhere. And he was very open, actually. And I think for all his shyness, very comfortable on camera. He seems so in your film. I mean, for anybody listening, we'll put a link to on YouTube to the film so they can see how beautiful and talented he was. I mean, as you know, because we've been trying to get a, a, a film made about Kuryokin's visit to the UK, and so I came up with this. It's a bit cheesy byline, but as a way of pitching it, which is that I describe him as the sort of punk Soviet Frank Zappa, uh, by which you think of a guy with long hair and a moustache. No, he looked like a kind of like a sort of new romantic. 
film star or something, didn't he? He was beautiful looking, but he did have some of Zappa's kind of gigantic uh, 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 sort of experimentation, technical virtuosity, quite straight-laced in some ways. I mean, I don't think he took drugs or anything, did he? No, he, he, he was he, like but Zappa, wit, he was wit and very funny, wasn't it? And a bit Dardaist. So Absolutely. like Zappa in that way, and obviously, yeah, but a complete generation later, because it's punk, it's got it's infused by the spirit of new wave and punk as but well, also, isn't it? And also the enormous scope of musical erudition, mm. which kind of uh, links him with Zappa again. Mm. Mm-hmm. So then yeah. through, through, through the entire spectrum, what yes. be it classical, blues, jazz, mm. avant-garde, rock, pop. Uh, so it was all there. It was all in his head. And he, he used it all, mm. as much as Zappa did. Yeah. did. Did he know Zappa? They met. Really? They met in 1988. Yes, they met in October 1988 when Sergei Sergei's first trip to the United States. Oh, they met in Los Angeles. Yeah. Nothing came out of the meeting, mm. but he spent a day uh, with Frank Zappa in his, at his home in his mm. studio in Los Angeles. We've heard, we've heard uh, uh, some of Sergei's piano music. He's beautiful and stuff. Let's hear a bit something a bit more kind of chaotic. You're bouncing away, that bringing back some memories, is it? It really does, yeah. <laughs> it really does. Um, I mean, it was funny actually because I watched the film again, you know, when we after we'd started talking, and it's amazing how it just it's like opening a box in, in your attic mm. in a way, you know, it just all came flooding back, and I just suddenly remembered the music so well, and then obviously all of the stuff around filming that film yeah i mean uh, uh and you know watching the film now it's a, it's an emotional film is it particularly as we know that he died sort of tragically in his 40s didn't he but at that time um i mean what's fascinating too is when you're filming like a kind of bunch of friends but they're all possessed by this kind of quite manic energy in a way aren't they and i mean i guess they reflecting what was going on in their country which was you know the great unwinding was about to happen i suppose wasn't it and then living an underground life and there's artists and performance artists and some famous people and not so famous people all mixed up together weren't they yeah i think that's absolutely right and i think also it was because here was an opportunity now to be able to really communicate with the outside world you know and that was a very long time coming so that obviously you know leo with his leo records for him his mission was very much also to educate not only the west about what was happening in the soviet union but also to let people in the soviet U- union know what was happening in their country because it was you know if you weren't in leningrad it would be very difficult to know about that so it was sort of connecting that network um and i think that you know with 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 us doing this it was finally this chance mm-hmm. to to get known and i know very poignantly i know there's a moment i think in the interview with sergey where he says i think it's very you know it's very unlikely i'll ever get the chance to go to the west and um 
of course he did get the chance and in fact mm. the film in April and very <laughs> and much sooner than he anticipated well, we're going to come on to that because of course your film I mean he went to as Alex said to America and all sorts of places but him coming to the UK in 1989 30 years ago was prompted by your film I'm going to come back to that actually but uh, um Oh, it's, you know, that time, all those people together, Timor, the artist, and, and uh, uh, Africa, and they're, they're all sort of uh, at it together. You were there, and uh, Kolya Vasin was there, mm-hmm. we noticed, the Beatles guy who we've uh, interviewed, sadly deceased. Um, it was a proper underground community, wasn't it? And I was fa- we were fascinated to, to read, uh, or, sorry, to, to see in the film that this underground rock world... Uh, they were becoming very well known in so you know, entirely through the spread of reel-to-reel tapes, Absolutely. weren't they? In cassettes, Absolutely. it was like a kind of bootleg—not bootleg even, but a sort of pirate distribution service. Nobody got paid any royalties; they're all skint. Uh, it's very evident in the film, uh, and yet they're being listened to by possibly hundreds of thousands of people, right? Millions, millions of people, millions right? of people. Yeah, the, um, I mean, the, the, there was a revolutionary role that Boris Grebenshik, a friend of Sergei, played in this because he came up with this idea of not only just recording the music, but putting them out as albums so of course you didn't have any access to uh, proper uh, manufacturing but uh, you had a real to real tape and um, uh, the tape was uh, of such a length that there would be it looked like it it sounded as an album in a way that there was one side about 20 minutes and the other side about 20 minutes like a proper LP then you had a box and on that box, they glued on photographs which were specifically made for this particular album. So it looked like a cover album. It opened up like a gatefold album. <laughs> and it had te- the, the name of the album, the list of the tracks, and the personnel. So it looked exactly like the album. And of course, by making them, it was actually handmade. You could only make what? I don't know, maybe a dozen copies, mm. two dozen copies. But nevertheless, those two dozen copies spread, and then they were multiplied and spread over the, the entire uh, Soviet Union. So the music was known, the music was listened to. And these uh, people, that, they, they became like underground heroes. Mm. They became uh, virtually uh, very well known. But, and along with that, people like Leo, people like Olivia and Richard, and lots of other people, they were coming from the West, and the music was getting known in the West. So we felt, and the musicians felt, the artists felt, that we were on the brink of something major happening. Mm. That this cannot, even though Sergei said that, uh, yeah, well, I don't know whether I'm going to make it ever to the West, but nevertheless, we felt that something was brewing up. So that there was all this pressure uh, boiling and brewing and it had to explode. It had to come up with the, with something major. I mean, actually, just one thing I just suddenly thought of, because actually I don't know if we ever discussed this afterwards, because, of course, it took a, you know, a certain amount of bravery to agree to let us film them, because it's all very well for us. We would come back to our nice little safe country and show the film. But, you know, they were now the subject of the film and, and known. And I think what we always were worried about was their sort of safety. Mm. Um, and we felt that if the fact that they were now sort of in the public domain would give a kind of certain immunity. But I wonder, Alec, were there any repercussions after we made the there film? There weren't. And that is a very interesting uh, point that you are raising here. By opening up to the Western media, to people like yourselves, 
we knew that we were get, getting a protection. Mm. That the more exposure mm. we had in the West, the more difficult it is going to be for them to suppress us. Because once Sergei's record came out, once and uh, there was huge press in the West, once your film came out, as soon as the authorities decided to, in one way or another, to suppress, there would be a cry out in the West. Mm. So we knew that that mm. was our guarantee, that was mm. our protection. Mm. And therefore, we pushed forward full speed and we couldn't care less. Mm. But I mean, it's After all, I mean, we, we weren't doing anything. We weren't, actually, we weren't even political dissidents, you know? Of course, in our minds, we were, but we weren't doing mm. political dissent. Mm. Well, I mean, all we did was culture. Right, it's culture, isn't it? So, I mean, a bit like our X-ray audio project. Yeah. You know, the people who are making music on X-rays. They were not political dissidents. They were kind of cultural dissidents. Absolutely. In, 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 in you some, just want to be respect. able to express yourself. Yeah, express, yeah. or listen to the music that you love, or perform the music that you love, or go and watch the music you love. Right. And I mean, it wasn't. I don't know because I don't speak Russian, but I get the impression that with this music, it wasn't particularly lyrically challenging to the state it was i mean musically it was challenging because it was kind of pretty avant-garde wasn't it and that's what Kuro can say is, is that they wouldn't put us on an official concert because they just wouldn't understand it actually it was completely out of, out of reach wasn't it i think it was the the anarchy of it because there were these wonderful mm. sort of soviet propaganda slogans which were things like you know from the saxophone to the knife mm. is just one step mm. But that, that dated back to the 50s, early 50s. Actually. Quite right too, I don't like saxophones either. <laughs> I don't like this, uh, but uh, it was fortunate, of course, that your film did get out, uh, Livy, because you had to, just tell us how you got it out. Because you, you've shot it, which is wonderful, or handheld and all that stuff, and, and, but how did you get it out? So um, when we were, had to come out, so <clears throat> by now we have all of these VH cassettes that we've shot. Meanwhile, you know, if ever we were out and about shooting and we felt that people were taking any, paying any attention to us, um, I would jump in front of the camera and pretend I was being a tourist. Um, so we had a whole pile, you know, of VHS cassettes, which are quite bulky. Plus, I had some um, reel-to-reel to bring back to Leo, I seem to remember, for him to release another record of Sergei's. And I think I had the reel-to-reel of the Comrades theme music, which we had mm. asked Sergei to compose. Which you started the programme with. Which we start the programme with, mm. indeed. Mm. And so in those days, when you were coming into or leaving the country, they x-rayed all of your baggage. And so I remember thinking, I mean, I look back at it now, you know, it's wonderful these things you do when you're young and you kind of have no thought of um, the repercussions really. But as we were coming back out, I thought, oh my God, you know, they're going to x-ray this stuff. Um, and I'm going to say, you know, these are just tourist tapes, but then I've got all this reel-to-reel. Um, and I could hear my heart pounding so loudly that I thought it was an external sound. And then it came and, and I could see the x-ray and all I could see were reel-to-reel tapes. And for some reason, whoever was x-raying it was a bit bored and wasn't really looking. And so off we went. God, you must have had a drink when you got on the plane. It was a certain amount of relief. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank heavens for that. Because we'll come back in a minute, actually, because one of one of the uh, consequences, apart from what Alex was saying, was the, the events uh, in Liverpool thirty years ago. But Alex, just to go back, because the other big thing about uh, 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 karaoke and popular mechanics, you know, so you can see it in the film, it was a performance thing, isn't it? I mean, in some, I mean, the, the recordings, beautiful or strange or wacky as they may be, they don't really represent 
what they do, did they? Because the, the, their concerts were like something else. Maybe we could talk about that. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> that was indeed something else. And that's, that's a huge shame that... Uh, well, there are a few video recordings, but even th those that there are there, they do not uh, give justice to what it was. Mm. Because I remember being at a number of Popular Mechanics concerts and you had your hair... Up, you know, it's it was absolutely incredible the way he structured them, the way there were scores and uh, at later points even hundreds of performers with uh, animals with beating uh, the shit out of metal uh, stuff and yeah, uh, the, the the entire gamut of music. I mean, again, from folk music to choir music to symphony orchestras to to jazz and rock and um, uh, industrial section with uh, sledgehammers and scrap metal um, and uh, opera singers uh, and dancers and circus performers and animals, everything. And it all was happening at the same time on a huge stage and you didn't know where to look because it was all happening simultaneously. And Sergei was... Uh, like a, like a god, you know, towering over this whole pandemonium and directing everybody. Well, screaming. they called him the captain, yeah. That was his. That was they his, called the, him the, the captain. Yeah. Yes, that was, was the captain of a kind of insane ship. But you felt yeah. it was a bit like the inside of his head, mm. you know, uh, in a way that there was some mm. sort of manifestation, mm. you know, outer manifestation of his internal world. But and he always said, you know, I need a symphony orchestra, I need a circus, <laughs> I need a zoo. <laughs> and I he told me that, and then he told me that in I interviewed him. I remember in 1982 long before Popular Mechanics even started and I asked him what would be your ideal kind of situation that you would have uh, for, for the music and he, he, he listed all of that you know long before he, he could even dream of making it possible but he had it all in his mind mm. Were the shows tightly scripted or were they it was you could feel that it was pretty much a well, free it was, form It was scripted in a way I mean he mm. had this kind of very rough scenario that uh, he, well, I remember I was at a number of these rehearsals and, uh, of course, no music was uh, written and scored properly, but he had these blocks and he would tell them, okay, well, now that this block, you guys, you rock musicians, come over. Then you, klezmer guys, you come over. And then you, industrial section with metal. And at the same time, you circus performer you come out with with the snake then the africa you take out the goat and take him out onto the stage you know and then a guitarist would be suspended um from the ceiling and uh descended um, from above and at the same time play you know all of these things he was making them up and he knew which uh, what should follow what and uh, he would scream and scream his commands like Rockers, you go out! You fucking rockers, you go out! Why do you <laughs> it's a far cry from sort of Rachmaninoff, isn't it? I mean, um, uh, oh. <laughs> let's have a let's have a listen to a bit more from Insect Culture, which kind of gets a bit of that inside of Serbia. <laughs> Thank you. 
It's not an easy listen, is it? It's a, I mean, it sounds like somebody doing their exercises. It's exercises, exercises. <laughs> but then Very if strange. you carry on, it just it got superimposed with some choral music. Some choral music, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Alex, you know, uh, so the, the the concerts were crazy, okay, and of course, completely. Uh, uh, I imagine for for you know. Uh, young people super exciting for older people probably rather rather alarming uh, and obviously for the authorities rather well, alarming. people wouldn't I mean people these concerts were not officially advertised sure I mean until later so those who came were already initiated yeah they did they knew what to expect and by the way it was packed so I, I, I was uh, you know interested I mean in terms of what, hap- what is going to happen next, uh, you know, Perestroika and Glasnost. Uh, the other thing which the authorities fear, obviously, is people gathering in large numbers, unsupervised, you know, that's a, all governments are terrified of that, aren't they? Um, in some small way, did what they were doing, people like them, you know, did it kind of help bring about change? You know, is, is, there, is part of the story of Perestroika and Glasnost that this, this, this sort of, as you said, this bubble sort of blowing up from the underground you know do do you think that helped to trigger what was going to happen absolutely absolutely as i said there was i mean the 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 change was brewing and as olivia rightly said uh, after brigitte's death uh, and the succession of uh, the deaths of his successors uh, andropov and chernyanka they died within a year of each other and gorbachev came to power in uh, in early 1985, uh, and he immediately proclaimed uh, that um, things were about to change. Nothing changed much, probably, until 1986. But in 1986, already, things were changing. And this pressure, this cultural pressure from the mm. cultural underground was enormous. And different things, like, uh, the Comrades film or Diana Stingray who released this Red Wave album in the United States with four underground bands from the USSR called Red Wave. That was a huge media splash in the US. It was all over the the media, like on front pages of Newsweek and New York Times and whatever. And uh, of course, the authorities I mean, they realized that there was no way they were able to continue to suppress it the way... They, they couldn't did. put the lid back on the bottle, mm, could they? Absolutely not, yeah. Mm. So they were forced in a way. I mean, I'm not saying that the um, uh, cultural underground, whatever it was, rock, jazz, or uh, all this music that we were talking about, that we are talking about, that it kind of uh, made Perestroika happen. No, there were certainly much more profound economical, political uh, reasons behind that, mm. uh, social and uh, everything, and military for that matter. We, we shouldn't remember, shouldn't forget uh, Ronald Reagan with Star Wars and uh, all of those things, and uh, the oil prices collapsing. So there were much more profound, fundamental, serious reasons for Perestroika to happen. But in terms of glassness, in terms of cultural openness, yes, 
what we did, what Sergei did, what Boris Gremenshikov did, what Alivia did, what Leo Fagin did, what Jana Stingray did, it was all hugely instrumental. Mm. And it all contributed to the overall movement. And was also, change. I mean, and was also happening, you know, in in other areas of the arts as Absolutely. well, wasn't it? You know, yeah. in in you know, painting and right. literature yeah. and yeah. theatre, and you know, there was this. I think also it was becoming less easy to stay apart and uninformed about the rest of the world. You know, yeah. the, the, there was this sort of uh, increase in information. Talk a little bit about, because you say in the other arts, so maybe talk a bit, little bit about some of uh, Sergei's uh, friends and contemporaries, artists, who, who subsequently became very well-known themselves. They've got Timor and stuff, didn't they? Well, Boris Grabenshikov became very right. well-known, didn't he? And sort of, course, of came yeah. and, and lived in the West. Yeah, Does he still and, uh, live here now? Uh, well, he kind of, well, he lives uh, pretty much in Russia, but I mean, he technically lives in Russia, mm. but he spends a lot of time here in London mm. and elsewhere, and he records here in London a lot. And, and Africa, Africa, who's in the film, is really kind of Sergei's best buddy. Uh, he was in the film Asa, so he became a bit of a film star, didn't he, and mm. an artist in his own right. Yes, yes, well, so I think all of those people, and like uh, Volodya, as you were saying, the chap who plays mm. the violin in the film and sings in a falsetto, mm. uh, Alec was telling me, now lives in Sweden, so... So, well, Dmitry Prigov, who was a friend, I mean, he, he didn't collaborate with Sergei in those days, but a bit later he became a hugely well-known uh, artist, poet, uh, and lots of uh, other people, even Ellen Trio. And also there was this good sort of, you know, collaboration between people in all the different areas of the arts, because when they would put on these unofficial concerts, they would often use the opportunity to stage exhibitions mm -hmm. of, you know, artists' friends' works, because that was an opportunity for people to see that as well. So I think there was there was so much collaboration, wasn't mm. there? Yeah, and uh, the same uh, Liverpool Popular Mechanics concert. Right, so we should talk about, about that. that. There, there, yeah. there was an exhibition of uh, yeah. new artists, same thing happened in Stockholm, where the popular mechanics went first, even before Liverpool, mm. uh, they were bringing, I don't know, dozens of uh, canvases mm. of artworks, and along with the concert, there would be an exhibition. So one of the consequences of your film, Olivia, was that Colin Fallows, who, who's now a sort of venerable professor at uh, John Moore's University, but, you know, uh, deeply involved in the counterculture himself, him and his uh, a friend, they, they saw your film. I think uh, Colin told me that he was, in a, he was in a hotel room, and it came on. I'm not even sure where he was. And he saw your film and got complete, they got, both got completely obsessed with uh, Sergei Karyokin and, uh, and wanted to get them over to the UK. Uh, and that story, of course, you know, that's 30 years ago. That took three years, actually, because they came up against the same stuff that you did. Karyokin doesn't exist. There's no such person. Blah, 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 blah. They kept pushing and pushing and pushing. They couldn't get it to happen. And then... Uh, Alex mentioned Ronald Reagan earlier. It was because of Ronald Reagan that Sergei Karyokin came to Liverpool. Let's have a listen to this. Nothing would please me more than to see the day that a concert promoter in, say, England could call up a Soviet rock group without going through any government agency and have them playing in Liverpool the next night. Is this just a dream? Now, as far as we know, this was sort of, he just plucked Liverpool out of the air. Absolutely. Because most Americans, when they think about music in the UK, they think about Liverpool, or the Beatles, okay? So, and he probably just said Leningrad, you know. Uh, this, this sort of throwaway comment uh, sort of gathered gravity as it sort of floated away <laughs> uh, and became this big sort of thing. Uh, uh, and within a week, uh, Colin Fellows and Pete Fuller were told that they could 
that Sergei Kiriokin did exist and they could bring him to Liverpool. Uh, so it's all thanks to Ronald Reagan. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. Yes, no, because I remember Colin getting in touch with me and discussing it and, you know, <clears throat> talking and seeing whether it would be possible. And, and yes, as you say, I think it probably did take about, it took about three years. And then suddenly here, Sergei was, right. was here. And I think in terms of what we're just talking about now, so it wasn't just Sergei. So what happens is that uh, Colin Files and Peter Fuller, they, they, they bring, or oh, they invite them to Liverpool and they, they invite the kind of the whole gaggle of them. So Africa comes and Timor comes and various other people come and they do this thing called the Perestroika in the avant-garde in the Tate and Liverpool in various venues around and they come for a week which sounds it sounds like a very full-on intense uh, week were you there Alex no, uh, there. Yeah, Olivia were you there I wasn't right. actually no so what they did they did pretty much what I think you I was s- back in Russia right <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Colin says that you know that he asked uh, Sergei what he wanted and he immediately said well I want an orange marching band on stage with a Catholic some Catholic choir, obviously, which is in Liverpool, sort of asking for trouble. Um, plus, uh, you know, members of Echo and the Bunnymen and the Christians and various other people, and you know, all mixed up together. And they do these, they do these events and this exhibition at the Tate. And I do believe that uh, half of them went missing when they were here, and uh, they bought some magic mushrooms and disappeared for about three days. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, Colin had to definitely go and round them up <laughs> uh, and bring them back. And of course, that was 30 years ago this year, which, as you know, we've been trying to do something to to mark that when you know we can sh- hope we can show comrades and stuff. So uh, after that, uh, uh, partly because of, of the event, but mainly I think because of the film and what you guys were doing, then Sergey and Co start to travel a bit, don't they? A lot. A lot. A lot. And so did you see him again? Um, uh, yes, yeah. yes, I did. I saw him. Um, actually, I saw him a few times here. And I see he, he performed at the Royal Festival Hall. Right. And I remember that was just so brilliant because it was so extraordinary that mm. given how, you know, we'd met and what we'd had to do. And suddenly here he is playing to a packed out auditorium at the Royal Festival Hall. Amazing. How was it? Uh, fantastic, you know, it was was great. Actually, but I seem to remember it being a slightly more formal concert, actually. No goats? No, I think it was more just him on the piano. Right. Um, but there was always that side to him as well. So, you know, when you hear him play the piano, it mm. was fantastic. Um, and uh, it, was, it, was, it was, it felt so extraordinary because I think we'd always been very hard to envisage that a time would come when, you know, we would, be able to be in London mm. together and show him London, and then suddenly here he was. And mm. it's interesting now you remember this concert at Royal Festival Hall, which actually I can't remember. Uh, well, I wasn't here yet, but uh, shortly before his death in uh, 1996, uh, when I was about to move to London, and uh, neither of us knew that he was about to die in three or four months, but at the same time, there were talks going on for arranging a huge popular mechanics concert at Royal Festival Hall. And uh, you're talking about uh, the Christians and Echo and Bunnyman for the Liverpool concert. At that point, he was talking about Ringo Starr (laughs) (laughs) drumming for popular (laughs) mechanics. (laughs) Always ambitious. Yeah. Um, Probably would have got him as well. <laughs> so they started. They started to travel, and uh, what was that like? Because obviously, in the film, you know, he's rather poignantly saying, "I don't think I'm ever going to get out of here," and you know, it's a, it's a, it's a sort of pipe dream. But uh, what was it like when he actually did manage to do that? I think he just sort of took everything in his stride. Really, you know, um, it was just well, okay, so this is happening, and I, I think Sergei wasn't somebody to show 
astonishment, I think. I don't, is that right, Alec? Do you know what I mean? I think he just yeah. thought, well, okay, Absolutely. so this is yeah, happening yeah, yeah, now. Yeah. And, he, and uh, he was using the opportunity mm. uh, to, to, to extend that uh, it was provided to him. Like, okay, if the organizers or the promoter of uh, this or that festival could bring up, I don't know, four, five, six musicians, fine. He'll gonna, he would bring the core of Popular Mechanics from Leningrad and the rest, he would uh, have them f- f- hire on site, you know, mm. so he would have, he would say, okay, I'm bringing this core group, but I, I'm going to need a string quartet or a chamber orchestra or a choir or a, a circus performers and, and this and that. And then from, 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 from the local talent, he would uh, form his uh, popular mechanics mm. or occasionally he would have, he, he could have, I don't know, bring 20 people. So then he would bring the, the, the entire band uh, from, uh, from from Leningrad. So whatever the, the chances he had, he would use them. Mm. He was focused on the work. Mm. You know, mm. he was really focused on the work. And he was so extraordinary to watch as well when he was, um, you know, conducting Popular Mechanics because he did it in an extremely um, idiosyncratic way <laughs> and used his whole body. To put it to mildly. To... <laughs> <laughs> so, With you know, he would leap you, in yeah, the... Yeah. He, oh, it was top of, he would leap in the air... He would, you know, use his whole body. If he wanted people to be quieter, he would, you know, sort of squeeze the air. And so that was as much... He would lie on his back and conduct with his legs. Yeah, well, that was I mean, as much was, part he of was, the I was look, watching him do that in, 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 in the film, and, and he's like a child in a way, isn't it? Like the way that an enthusiastic child would Absolutely. be, you know. Uh, um, meanwhile, of course, back home, uh, Glasnost, Perestroika have, ha- uh, have happened, or sort of happened in the great unwinding of, of the Soviet Empire. And of course, he starts to become quite famous, doesn't he? And I wanted Alex to talk about a particular incident, a particular incident which made him very famous, which is the TV show where he, 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 he sort of presents, performs this kind of trick uh, uh, of, of saying that Lenin was a mushroom, which sounds ludicrous, but was seen to have been taken seriously by many, many people. So maybe, Alex, just tell us what happened, because that, that catapulted him to infamy, didn't it? Yeah, that catapulted him into sort of nationwide fame. And probably now, if you ask uh, like uh, somebody, I mean, people in the street somewhere in, in Russia, who was Sergei Kurekin, the, probably the most immediate associations for most would uh, be Lenin was a mushroom. <laughs> uh, that uh, was indeed a huge, carefully planned and wonderfully executed uh, television prank, uh, which was going on for two hours in a studio in Leningrad TV, uh, where his friend, uh, Sergei Sholohov, who was a host of a regular uh, TV show called The Fifth Will, um, and uh, Sergei Kurekin had prepared uh, lots of uh, video material, um, uh, like old footage with Lenin and uh, pseudoscientists who were commenting on this or that aspect, and uh, they were remembering how Lenin was uh, fond of picking mushrooms and how he was um, collecting this or that and uh, like all these crazy ideas and uh, they were all brought together and uh, with full seriousness for two hours they were talking and proving that Lenin was indeed a mushroom and they were going back to I don't know, religious mythology and uh, Mexican legends uh, and uh, everything and political 
whatever, theories and conspiracy theories. Uh, Sergei later said that the idea came to him because when uh, with Perestroika and with Glasnost, all sorts of conspiracy theories were mushrooming right. uh, on, uh, in Russian media and on Russian television. And when he saw... Uh, that uh, on a program on television that uh, the famous poet uh, Sergei Yesenin um, was um, uh, well, it was like common knowledge that Yesenin committed suicide, and there was this theory that Yesenin did not actually commit suicide, but he was uh, assassinated. And Sergei was kind of, oh gosh, now you could prove anything. And so he came up with this absolutely crazy, wild idea to kind of play this prank on television. Well, the astonishing thing, I think, from the outside, the astonishing, two astonishing things about it. First of all, is that because lots of people took it at face value. Well, I don't know whether, well, yeah, some people did take it at the face value. And the second, well, the second thing is, is that to say such a thing Sacrage. would have been absolute heresy punishable in earlier times by ex by being shot, wouldn't it? I mean, to say something like that about well, Lenin 20 this years was, before... This was 1991. Mm. And by that time, uh, we had Glasnost like, going in full swing since 1989. So there were lots and tons of material uh, about Lenin, about communism, about Bolshevism, about Stalin, that it, from political point of view, it was not such a novelty to kind of uh, dethrone Lenin. Lenin had pretty much already been dethroned. So the revolution... He hadn't been turned into a fungus, though. I mean, that's, exactly. that's the yes. step beyond, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. For, for, that's, for, the step, I mean, that's the step beyond. For, for surely for older, older people in the Soviet Union, it's one thing with, with sort of, you know, youngsters, but I mean, for older people, that must have have really gone right to the root. Whether or not you believed it, the fact that somebody was on TV saying that well, for there somebody was, there who was, was in their the 50s, inertia, 60s. There was still inertia in terms of people still sort of brought up on decades of Soviet propaganda. People mm. were believed mm. what uh, the was official... That was no, not only that Lenin mm. was a god, but they believed that what the official uh, propaganda, what the official media were saying. Mm. And if this is said on television that there, there should be, be something to mm. it. Mm. To be fair, also, Russians do love mushrooms. <laughs> and they love That's to gather true. them. And true. can be found, you know, in Hyde Park yeah. doing the same. So. <laughs> and there is a sort of Dardai streak yeah. that's gone through Surreal. Russian culture, surrealist, isn't it? So it's in the context of that. Um, of course, we'll talk a little bit in a second about uh, Sergei's tragic end. But I want to play a track which you uh, suggested, Alex, from the children's album, which was released yeah. after he died, I think.
Хотел бы стать сурком, стать сурком, мотыльком, Um, that's right up my street. It's quite cheesy in a way, and uh, I don't know. Obviously, I don't understand the, understand the Russian. <laughs> that's the whole point. Like that. That's the point. Why? Did you understand that? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. But it is. It's sort of slightly sentimental, sentimental. and rather cute, and yeah. you can hear that Sergei is taking the piss. Taking really, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't care. Cause I'm, I'm like, <laughs> what was the theme with then? The lyrics on that was it? Well, it was that, just well, bathing in your eyes. Yeah. Groundhog. It's uh, called uh, Groundhog. Groundhog is the, the, the animal, right? The ground- An animal, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's called uh, Groundhog Sing, I want to kiss you, I want to kiss you with my eyes, yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> with my lips. <laughs> it's, it's very kitsch, yeah. very cheesy. Yeah. Mm. But at the same time, there's Sweet, enormous, mm. enormous tongue in cheek in there. Yeah, and funnily enough, actually, it reminds me a bit of Gansburg, another Russian, of course, uh, living in France. and, and, uh, uh, and Who? Serge Gansburg. Okay. Gainsborough, as you say, is a, yeah. is he, he rebranded himself a Russian Jew living Russian in, in, Jew, yeah. in in France, and because uh, I mean, Gainsborough too had this kind of incredible suite, didn't he, of mm. sort of uh, technical virtuosity, a piss taker really as well. You know, the man who the man who lit a hundred franc note and burnt it on French TV, you know, and all that stuff. He, he had something in common with that, I think. Yeah. Um, let's move on to the sort of sad stuff though, because. Tragically, in his early 40s, uh, 42, uh, Karyokin died of a very rare form of cancer, didn't he? Heart cancer, and uh, out of the blue, right? Uh, Pretty much. Uh, Olivia, maybe, when did you last see him? I was trying to, I think I last saw him in the, it was the early 90s mm. when he was over here, and I remember him being at my house and having dinner, and I, I can't remember which trip that was, but I, I think it was not a, maybe a couple of years after that that he died. And I, um, it's one of those weird things, isn't it? Because I sort of remember being told on the phone and I remember where I was in my house mm. and feeling really utterly devastated. Mm. Mm. Uh, I mean, it's sort of much overused uh, phrase, isn't it? Sort of tragically early death. Uh, I mean, you know, all early deaths are tragic in a way. But of course, in his case, because he was sort of phenomenally talented, phenomenally charming. Uh, and also, you know, instrumental in bringing about that change. It was a tragedy, wasn't it, that he, he got... And weirdly as well, I had had two other, you know, Russian friends who had died at the age of mm. 42. Mm. One was an, uh, a, Mos- a Moscow actor and the other was Dinara Sanova, who was the film director. Mm. And I, I just felt, uh, it was just, mm. I don't know, it was like a curse somehow. Mm. But with Sergei, I think it was just so impossible to believe that He'd been extinguished, mm. you know. Um, I mean, far worse for you, Alec, of course. Oh, but. Yes. What was that like, Alex, then, when it happened? Well, as I said, uh, I saw him in March, uh, right before I moved here. And uh, a month uh, has passed. I was just sort of trying to make a profit in my family. So new job, new country, everything, of course. And as I said, Sergei mentioned this popular mechanics concert, uh, which I was just got in contact with the... Oh, what was his name? I can't recall now. The guy who ran the program at Royal Festival Hall. We were started talking. And then in early May, I'm getting a phone call from a friend who says that uh, Sergei is in hospital. Uh, he has this uh, terrible uh, heart cancer and he's got two months to live. And um, uh, he never got out of the hospital. I, well, he, he got out for one night, I think. Mm. 
in late May. And at that point, I knew that he would be coming out. And uh, I, his wife, Nastya, told me that he, on that particular night that he would be at home. So I called and we had a, a long conversation for about 40 minutes or so. And he wasn't told mm. by his family or friends uh, what was happening to him and uh, how serious the disease was. And I was playing along and I was telling him, well, look, uh, I'm coming over in a month's time in early June and uh, you sure would be better by then and we'll be whatever, doing our regular things together. And uh, of course he died on the 9th of uh, July, which was pretty much exactly two months after I heard the news on the 5th of May. Mm. And on the 9th of July, he was gone. Did you go there for the funeral? I didn't. Mm. I didn't go for the funeral. I went uh, because I was supposed to come. I was still at work, but it was my first year with the BBC. Mm. And I came like literally a couple of weeks later. And I uh, went, of course, to the cemetery. And uh, yeah. Since then, you, out with Nastya as Sergei's wife, you have been instrumental in sort of keeping his legacy alive. It's not keeping it alive because it's grown, hasn't it? Actually, he's become recognised, and there's a there's a in Lenin, in Saint Petersburg there is the Kurokin Festival, isn't there, in the centre, and uh, so it's and very the, much the kind Korean of like, award. Korean award, yeah. So he sort of lives on, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, it does. Very much so. Mm. Yeah, very much so. So, how will you remember him? <laughs> uh, well, I will remember him in many, many ways. I mean, uh, as a friend, uh, as probably one of the most interesting, creative, ambitious, talented artists that uh, ever existed and that I ever knew, either personally or as, uh, as someone who's been... <laughs> involved in arts for my entire life so um. well you can see uh, what we've been talking about in Olivia's film we'll post the uh, link to that in the notes and uh, just to say I mean I went to see your latest uh, film the biopic of Teddy Pendergrass the week before last Olivia amazing thank you knocks spots off the uh, Freddie Mercury film I thought thank you thank you <laughs> again you That's know amazing. fantastic talent and an extraordinary mm. life story yeah absolutely so and uh, so thank you for all that that and thank thanks you. Alex um, we hope we'll be uh, re reunited at the end of the year in this in a sort of 30 year anniversary celebration of the Liverpool event yeah, yeah uh, sort of funding allowing but um, that's it we're going to play out um, with the closing music from the final film Comrades the film about uh, Karyakin called is, All That Jazz by is the that, way I'll call All That Jazz and this is uh, a recording that you made of Sergei at the piano at the end of the film
The final music of the final episode of the series Comrades, made by Olivia Lichtenstein back in the 1980s, featuring Sergei Karyokin on the piano there. You've been listening to the Bureau of Lost Culture. You can check us out at bureauoflostculture.com. We'll be back next time with more Lost, Half Forgotten, or Barely Remembered Counter Cultural Stories. 